0: The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Episode 69 It's a Sin Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken
1: Moss I'm Simon Exton. I'm Alan Fogg and I'm Paul Isles-Rush.
0: And tonight we are discussing what, to be fair, is considered a bit of a milestone in television. It's the Russell T Davies series, It's a Sin. Now, I'm hideously outnumbered here, I'm the only straight man of the panel. Boys, it's really,
1: it's over to you. Simon, what's this thing about? It's about five episodes long. Are we going to talk about gin first?
0: I suppose we'd better whip out the tonic screwdriver and have a drink first. Yeah, go on then. (laughs) What have we got for tonight?
1: Tonight, we have Pink 47 London Dry Gin. Ooh, it's a 47% gin, so... Oh, that'll be why it's called Pink 47.
0: Yes, and I'll the info box one. tells us that Pink 47 is a distinctive London dry gin, carefully crafted in small batches with 10 botanicals from around the world. The result is a uniquely full and complex flavour. It's smooth with a crisp and compelling finish, but without a trace of harshness. Ah... Expertly distilled four times and at 47% alcohol by volume, it's perfect for cocktails or with mixers and has won many international awards since it was launched. Well, the first thing I'm going to say before we launch into, as usual, the bouquet is the bottle that it comes in. It's fantastic. It's a sort of crystal thing, but the one that we've got has got a little light underneath it and you push a button and the thing, well, Paul, you
2: can see it. What do you think? It's the gayest thing I've ever seen,
0: (laughs) but I've got to say it's beautiful. Love it, yeah. It's like a massive crystal, pink forty-seven. This is amazing. What a piece of marketing! It's
1: great. Whereas my bottle has come with um, just a a free bottle light, and it says "glorify your diamond,
0: (laughs) (laughs) baby, baby."
1: Baby, filthy. (laughs) So right.
0: Now that you're all verjazzled or whatever the gay equivalent is, what do we think of the nose? Uh, I'm not getting much out of that, actually.
1: No. I, mm. It kind of smells a bit like gin, but yeah. Yeah. There, there <laughs> aren't, you can tell that there's alcohol in it, but you, there aren't any flavours that come up and smack you around the drops. No, trucks. not really. Oh, it smells like a gin and honey.
0: So, diving in, what do we think? Paul, I'm going to start with you.
2: Mmm. It tastes like a gin and gin- a tonic. <laughs> that is the most unremarkable face I've ever seen anyone pull. <laughs> I don't not like it, but I can't well, get anything out of no, it. No, it is a gin, but
0: it's a gin with a bit of a sweet edge, I would say. To me, it's nothing remarkable. Uh, Boys in Stoke, what do you think? Not necessarily getting the dryness of it and
3: very dangerous because you wouldn't tell it's 47%. You could knock that back quite happily Mm, as
1: a general mixing gin and um, come off second best. I have to agree, it tastes like a gin and tonic. It's a nicely blended gin, but there's nothing special about it at all. It's fairly unremarkable. Yeah. I'm forced to give this a three, really
0: reluctantly, Mm. because the promise on the way that it's presented and the way that it's flowered and the way that it's lit up in the gayest way possible. I'm really disappointed that I'm not more blown away by this, but it's got to be a three, I'm afraid. Um, I agree, it's three. Yeah,
1: yeah. I agree, it's three for me as well. It's a bit I'd, like
3: that Pride gin, really, isn't it? You know, they, they try and go for a bit of marketing with a sort of flavour into the sort of the, the gay arena and then not necessarily live up to anything
1: brilliant. Um, I don't think it's like the Pride gin because this does taste like gin, yeah. uh, whereas that that was so over-distilled it tasted like vodka. I think I'd give it a three, but what I'd probably
2: do is put a nicer gin into the bottle <laughs> and, then it, and, then, and then give it a four. <laughs> What a shame. But Pink 47,
0: 10 out of 10 for a presentation. I'm really genuinely impressed.
1: And they do do an actual pink pink gin called Pink Royale. So what's the difference between the Royale and... Is it just colour or is it flavours? I don't know because I don't have a bottle of it. I've just noticed that it, it's advertising it on this glorify your diamond thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they need to get a better strap line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they do. It's
3: quite memorable. <laughs> Probably probably, poor lesbian gym with a strap.
0: So, dragging us back <laughs> to It's a Sin. Uh, oh, bollocks to it. Run the sig. Where do you see yourself in
1: five years' time? I'll be stinking rich. I want to learn everything. I just want to be happy. <laughs> I'm going to be an actor. Stupid little dreamer. If you leave now, you don't come back. Don't worry, I won't tell anyone. Lovely boy. Have you seen this?
3: There are boys dying all over the world, but no one knows anything.
2: Do you seriously think there's an illness that only kills gay men?
3: I don't believe it.
2: Now hit me with those lasers, please. We went into hospital. Ambulance. Shame on
0: you. He loved your son. What's wrong with that?
2: Do you think I should have known? I've
0: got some news for you. Now let's march! It's so I'm gonna live. It's five episodes long. It was broadcast in January and February 2021. Or you could binge-watch the whole thing, which I did. Simon, this is where you excel over me. What was the Prey
1: Right, okay. Before I start the Prey I need to warn people that if you listen to this, it will spoil the plot. It's a very recent production. If you don't want to be told what happens, stop the podcast, go and watch it, come back, listen to what we think. But if you carry on any further, I will be telling you the plot. (laughs) Right, so... Spoiler warning done. It's the story of a group of gay men, predominantly, in London in a 10-year period from 1981 to 1991. And they're a group of men who set themselves up in a household uh, that they call the Pink Palace, which kind of becomes a bit gay party central. Fuck, I can't remember any of the characters' names. Um, (laughs) the, The main character is... Line. Richie. The main character is Richie, who's quite a a protected wee lad from the Isle of Wight, who moves to London to study law, fancies an acting student by the name of Ash, and changes to acting and decides that he's going to become an actor. Uh, There's also Ash, who's a token Indian lad who actually doesn't really get an awful lot to do. Uh, He's a bit like Ferdy in this life in that respect. There is Colin, who is a Welsh lad who works in a bespoke tailor. There is Jill, who is their straight female housemate. Actually, we assume she's straight. You never actually see her with anybody, so mm. could be yeah. anything. There's Roscoe, who is a Nigerian lad who escapes from his house mid-exorcism, dressed up in oh, terrible drag. And there is
2: oh, a Scottish blokey's name. Is he actually given... Gregory, Gregory. other than
1: Gloria, yes, He's not Gregory, even listed on the
2: cast,
1: <laughs> 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 who isn't actually a member of the member of the household, but is a, a close friend of theirs and is uh, works as a bus conductor. Where the fuck were we? Um, you were about to get into the plot. <laughs> oh, does he have one? Yeah, um, they all
2: live in a house.
1: <laughs> yeah, they all they all live in a house. It starts off party central. Um, irritating actor bloke whose name I've forgotten again. Richie shags at anything that's moving. Colin is kind of a bit of a fish out of water because he's shy and sensible and all all the rest are um, really quite dramatic. Jill is... Does she have any defining character traits other than token female? Well, yeah, yeah, she's a sort of gay um,
3: community. And aids big ones to understand aids and the impact.
1: Well, I mean, that's what she does in the plot. But other, other than mother figure... Is there anything to her at all? A oh, standard fag hag.
2: Yeah, she's just a hag. And- <laughs> yeah, <she's-> Very <laughs> mind, boys and
0: girls. She's a real-life
2: character.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roscoe is kind of manager of the... Yeah, he, do- he does the-, the booking of the turns for the local gay pub. Ends up booking Jill and Richie to uh, perform a singing act so that they can get their equity cards. Time moves on. Gregory, Gregory becomes one of the first victims of AIDS uh, that they they know He goes back to live with his family in Glasgow. He's absolutely terrified of telling the others so only associates with Jill, who will turn up and look after him, but scrubs herself in the shower afterwards and wears marigolds as soon as she goes through through the door. And then it turns up one day and his Scottish family there taking him back to to Scotland and the people from the Pink Palace keep writing to him. You see that his sister intercepts all their their letters and rips them up. And when they send off a Christmas card, she rips it up and throws it on a bonfire that they're having to, to destroy all of his stuff. So presumably he's died at that point.
3: I think that's a key thing to point out, is early on in the plot, it's the very, very early days of AIDS, HIV, where there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of...
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in the first episode, um, it's called GRID, which Mm. is what it was known as before it was formalised as HIV-AIDS.
0: Yeah. Just for the benefit of this, uh, what did GRID stand for?
1: Uh, Gay-related immunodeficiency.
0: It was something I was hitherto unaware of, so it's worth yeah. recording, really.
1: Grid was sort of uh, first description of AIDS, and HTLV-1, I think, was the first descriptor of the virus that was th- would then get renamed as HIV. So the, the next thing that happens is that Colin gets a, uh, a work trip to America. Uh, he goes with his boss, and his boss is a bit weird and creepy. Um, <laughs> a and- bit? <laughs> <laughs>
0: God, even yes. as a straight man, that is the creepiest bastard ever seen on screen.
1: Oh, didn't think he was all that bad, actually. Oh, but...
0: that was horrible.
2: Also, when he goes to America, has Jill asked him to do some research into AIDS or something? she She's trying to find
1: out everything that she can. Yeah. To, yeah. to start with, Richie is very much, the, very much a, AIDS is a myth, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Whereas Jill listens to to what people say she become comes quite heavily involved in aids activism as does ash and that drives a bit of a wedge between ash and richie and she says says to colin look there is no information about this here while you're in america here's a list of bookshops will you please go and find me some stuff to read on it so I know what, I, know what i'm doing with colin in the first episode he he bonds with a um a co-worker who has lived with his Portuguese boyfriend for the last 30 odd years and he uh, he develops AIDS during the the first episode and is taken into hospital. Colin has to pretend to be family to see him and when he goes in to see him has has to wear surgical scrubs basically and when the when this fellow dies, you see that uh, a team of nurses going into the, uh, the hospital ward that he was on, on his own, and s- completely scrubbing the bed. It
3: was a locked hospital ward, key entry, wasn't it? And he was in a room mm-hmm. all by himself. Yeah. An ward all by himself.
1: Colin then had, um, he has this trip to America, during which which time his boss comes to his room for a drink and starts getting a bit creepy again.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> and notices the uh, the newspapers that Colin has, mm all about AIDS. And it's obvious that Colin's doing some research on that. And he freaks and leaves the room. When Colin gets back to London, he's told by um, the company secretary that his three year probation is over. And because he is no longer an apprentice, there is no longer a job for him. And he's basically kicked out of the building there and then. And it will send you a month's wages, but there's no need to stay around and work. And his boss won't even look at him so he then gets a job in a um in a copying shop so he's able to photocopy all the uh, the leaflets for the, the aids benefits becomes effectively deputy manager of the copying shop and his boss comes in one morning and discovers him having a seizure on the floor and it turns out that he's got a sort of brain manifestation of hiv that co- has caused him to have seizures so he goes home to wales to try and recover. And the local doctors in Wales freak about this and lock him up in the the hospital under Public Health Act. He's not allowed any visitors. Nobody's allowed to come in and come in and see him. And he's not even allowed out of the room to go to the loo. He has to use a a commode in the corner, which you get the impression isn't being regularly emptied because nobody comes in to see him. His food is left at the door, that kind of thing. So Jill, who has now started getting very involved in AIDS activism, gets a lawyer to come up to Wales and they arrange for Colin's release. He comes back to London to have, for more expert treatment and his mum comes and stays as well and is very supportive and supportive of everybody else. He gets worse and worse and develops a kind of AIDS dementia and then dies and none of the the funeral homes in his town will deal with his body. There's somebody in Cardiff who will do it, but he says that it would have to be cremated at night or certainly after everybody else and there wasn't any possibility of a, a service. Uh, Roscoe becomes involved with an MP, played brilliantly by Stephen Fry, mm, um, yes. who... Has an obsession with, uh, with Margaret Thatcher. Uses Roscoe as a sort of coloured face to uh, to demonstrate that uh, there was some inclusion within the, um, the Conservative Party. And when Mrs Thatcher was was coming to visit, this he and Roscoe have a big a big falling out. Um, and Roscoe pisses in Mrs Thatcher's coffee
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and doesn't tell the Stephen Keightley character about it until the coffee trolley has disappeared off in the direction of Mrs Thatcher. So you assume that that. Has just <laughs> wrecked Stephen Fry's chances of uh, of any kind of career promotion. At the same time as that's going on, there is an AIDS awareness protest that Jill and Ash are getting involved with. They ask Roscoe to come along. They ask Ritchie to come along. Roscoe has this Mrs. Thatcher thing. They has a parliament that he he said is he's, he's promised to go along to. And Richie feels that he would lose work if he were to be seen at the at the protest. Roscoe has the big big bust up with the, the MP boyfriend and so joins in with the protest. And the protest gets a bit violent and when Jill is being assaulted by the police, you see Richie run along and leap on the back of one of the, the policemen to to try and discourage him. He gets beaten up as well, put in a um a police van with all of the other main characters, and he's got some some cuts and bruises to his face. Ash wants to start cleaning him up and richie just says you can't come anywhere near me because i'm bleeding and that's the point at which they realize that richie has hiv what they don't realize at that point is that he's also, he's developed the point of um symptomatic aids so he tries to to carry on in london um he lives in the um, in the house as long as he can um, and then he collapses one night so he goes into hospital and jill and ash are there all the time looking after him it is a much nicer hospital experience than Colin underwent a few years previously. The staff are considerate and supportive and and helpful, and nothing like the um, the locked rooms and the, the full masking that you, you saw with Colin. And then Richie's parents turn up because he not want wanted to go home for Christmas, so they turned up and brought Christmas to him. And they they take him back to the Isle of Wight. Jill and Ash go over and try and try and see him and are blocked at every turn by Richie's mum. And in the end, Richie dies at home while his mum was doing something the other downstairs, so, so on his own. And there there's a big it's not really an argument scene, but it's recrimination between Jill and Richie's mum about the blame for, for Richie's promiscuity and death and Promiscuity
3: Jill- that he carried on even when he was HIV positive.
1: Yeah. And Jill lays all that, the blame to all of that at the, um, the feet of Richie's mom. That's pretty much the end of it. There's all sorts of bits and pieces that I've missed out that we can we can talk about when we we come around to talking about themes. On the whole, um, was, I think I
0: saw this probably before any of you lot. Paul, when did you you were you were pretty much on the bottom, weren't you?
2: Yeah, I think we watched it the Friday and Saturday yeah.
0: came out because um, I, I binge watched it knowing full well what a, an event this was going to be I made the time to watch this
2: as an honorary gay
0: as an honorary gay as I've been labeled tonight I'm, I'm <clears> so <throat> proud of this <laughs> but I'm going to start with oh I'm so tempted to call you my packet of fags um <laughs>
1: my-
0: <laughs> I'm going to start with
2: you, I boys, quite first. Like Shall I, <laughs> I slap <slide> him, gentlemen?
1: <laughs> yes, you have my absolute permission to use that because I, I, I quite like that s- descriptor. But I'll start, <laughs> I think we should
0: start with the guests first. Alan, what did you think?
1: I thought
3: it was good. It captivated me. In fact, it captivated both of us because you can soon tell if we're enjoying something because we're not looking at our phones whilst the TV's on in the background. I thought it told a good story having listened to simon's point of view i sort of agree in the fact that it tells a story which we've partially seen before and some of the challenges i think the interesting thing for me was literally the day before we started watching it i was at my osteopath and she's a you know a lady in her 50s married anything whatever like else and she said she found it quite tear-jerking whereas i didn't i saw it as a dose of realism i didn't need to go and reach for I was going to say the Kleenex. Gonna, well, I, I, was I knew the you wanted. were going to get married. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was trying to find a different way of putting it. I didn't find it a tear-jerking storyline. I found it to be truth and realism. and something that I've known and seen having lived in London and grown up in London um, until I left there when I was in my 30s. I personally enjoyed it. I liked the storyline. It did become a bit predictable in the fact that somebody was going to die every single episode. I particularly enjoyed the fact that it took an accelerated timeline. They could have strung it out longer, but they condensed it down to five episodes, and that, to me, felt about
2: right. Paul, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I did find it tear-jerking, and I don't know whether it was just because I was drunk when I was watching it, (laughs) (laughs) but but I didn't live in London when this was going on, and although I, I knew this kind of stuff went on, it really hit me and yes some of the stuff was predictable and some of the stuff was russell t davis at his best doing the same characters and the same stories that he always does but (laughs) there were just a few things and when colin died like the whole episode obviously you know he's gonna die and you know as soon as anyone's diagnosed you know they're gonna die because that's what happened and i just I don't know. I, I mean, I think I'd message you, Ken. <laughs> so, yeah, you from from the start of episode three, when Colin started getting ill, to the end of episode five, I think I was just crying all the way through. It just really hit me. And some of the scenes, you know, the, the scenes where they're in the hospital ward on their own, even in the first episode when... um Neil Patrick Harris's character is in the hospital ward on his own and Colin has to pretend to be a family member. Yet, yeah, it's cheesy and, it, you know, the way that it was done, it was, was a bit corny, but that's what actually happened. And I think for a lot of people, they didn't realise that it was it, it was that bad. But yeah, I I really liked it. I have an idea what Simon and... Ken, are going to say, are going to say about it, and I, and I do in anticipation. I do agree with what you're saying, but I loved it, and also we'll probably talk about it when we go like into more detail later. But the sound design, I think we've we've discussed it mm, slightly, yep, Ken, haven't yep. we? I didn't realise the score was done by Murray Gold. Yeah. I mean, I should have predicted it because it was <laughs> Russell C. Davis. So who else is he going to get to do it? But some of the the moments in it, in terms of the soundtrack and the the sound design, were just amazing. And especially that bit in the last episode yeah. where they're on the pier. That one scene where she, where Jill's having a massive go at Richie's mum, and then. The sound just cuts out because she, you know, she makes the revelation, and it's just, it was, it wasn't unexpected that the character died, but it was just the way that it was written. I, I thought it was amazing.
1: Ken,
0: well, I'm going to come in last on this because I feel, sort of, least qualified to have an opinion on this. Uh, okay, Simon, what
1: I, I was thinking of coming in on last, on it last, because I'm probably most qualified to have an opinion. does um, <laughs> oh, as... no, that's that's fair enough. I think um, It's
3: gay in the room.
1: As the <laughs> oldest gay in the room, so somebody who actually remembers that time. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I can give my opinion now. Um, I think it was competently written, as you would expect from Russell T. Davis. I don't think there was anything original in it, in it at all. No, it it felt to me like watching the greatest hits of gay cinema over the last thirty odd years. So you have Colin's storyline, which his HIV conversion was my night with reg it, it was exactly it, my night with reg it was very good it was early 2000s i think but it, it had a revival on the london stage in 2015 2016 at the time that this was being written so there isn't any way that russell t davis kind of been unaware of it I, th- I think i sent you a message ken after i'd watched episode one saying colin will be the sympathetic <laughs> audience identification character that we watched die horribly I was desperately,
0: (laughs) because I know that this, for so many people, has been one of those RTD, gay-defining television moments. I really didn't want to spoil it for you. On the flip side of that coin, I knew full well that you would be able to predict exactly (laughs) where the plot was going,
3: and you did. Yeah, he did whilst we are watching it.
1: Yeah, my night with Reg and the work bit with him getting booted out but not sacked... There were so many HIV-AIDS films back in the early 90s. To be fair, predominantly American. So Longtime Companion, Philadelphia, that kind of thing. There, there were there was a lot of Philadelphia in this. The whole shock and stigma of the Carposi's sarcoma that you see right from Neil Patrick Harris right the way through. Richie breaking up with his boyfriend because he recognizes a, um, a Carposi's lesion on the, the boyfriend's back. Losing his job through an excuse. Again, that was very Philadelphia. Um, The HIV dementia that Colin has is longtime companion. And okay, that was a a central character being arrested for taking a piss in a public park because he didn't realize where he is. And Colin, it's a bit more graphic. It's him talking about wanting to jack jack off over over Richie while Richie and his mom are there. Mm. Um, And then just says, actually, I'm going to do this now. And the nurse just recognizes what's going on and said, right, everybody out. Yeah, that that was a little bit more graphic, but it it was pure longtime companion. There were some good comedy
3: moments and some good shocking moments in there as well.
1: Yeah. And I can understand why people who haven't perhaps haven't seen an awful lot of gay cinema from the time, this would be a bit of an eye-opener. And especially seeing as now with PrEP, HIV and AIDS is kind of seen as a thing of the past. There were big chunks of things that were huge at the time and pretty much ignored in this. Section twenty-eight. There was a little bit about Ash trying to work out which books should be moved out of the school library. Yes, in the library. That massively underplays how huge an effect Section 28 had. Absolutely. Um, There is one scene about the iceberg campaign, which again was massive, and the repercussions of which were still being felt when I was at at medical school because such and such a monolith campaign with Don't Die of Ignorance and it was the chiseling out of a of a marble memorial stone it was unbelievably effective and the most
3: powerful piece of marketing to this day i would say
2: absolutely yeah,
1: the problem is that it absolutely con- with everything else that was going on, it absolutely concreted the hiv equals gay so when i was at medical school in the the early 2000s the general feeling was still that hiv is a gay disease and when I did my sexual health and HIV rotation, the larger number of new diagnoses of HIV were in the straight population because straight people believed that HIV was just something that happened to gays. Just on that note, I remember
0: seeing an advert for AIDS, late 80s, early 90s. Just to buy AIDS to today. Buy AIDS today. <laughs> No, it was, there was a heartbeat overlaid over it. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah, it was something mm. to do with needles. There was nothing about that that came across, even though I was well aware of homosexuality. I didn't see it as this is a gay disease. It was more a disease. Now, maybe that's the innocence of a child's eyes.
1: Yeah, it very, very clearly came across at the time. Um, when we've been talking about then, what's it, 83, 84? I'd been 15, 16, 14, 15?
0: Uh, no, I'm talking sort of late 80s, early 90s, so I don't remember any of the adverts. Oh, so I'd, I'd have been a late teenager.
3: So I remember the leaflet campaign coming through and it purposely been left on the dining room table. Because every single household got leafleted because of AIDS, yeah. um, which was a complete surprise because somebody in the eighties, you know, nineties didn't need to know. But if you look at it compared with what we're going through now with COVID-19, in terms of getting a message out there, things have dramatically moved on in terms of, you know, ways and methods of communication. But that leaflet campaign, in the entire UK it was a complete surprise.
1: I mean, that's assuming that people in their 80s and 90s don't have a sex life, which is a little bit ageist. No. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) And that that is making the assumption that penetrative sex is the only form of sex that's possible to have. The preceding (laughs) podcast
0: contains scenes (laughs) Um, which some listeners may find offensive.
2: Tough shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have that many octogenarian listeners.
0: For any octogenarian, nonagenarian, and <laughs> the people over a 100 who are listening, welcome aboard! And I
1: hope you're enjoying your sex life, with or without Viagra.
0: Other methods of sexual contact
1: are available. Right, fuck this. Where are we at? Um, All right, contact Ken.
0: Phone 0800 989 999. What the hell is in this gin? Right, fuck this.
1: What were we talking about? Right, okay, Ken, you're the voice artist. Come on, sexy (laughs) 90-year-old. (laughs)
0: Oh my god, no, even my imagination, I I can't let that run there.
1: Well, if you've got Parkinson's, it's an easy win. Fucking hell.
0: Fucking hell.
1: Welcome to the podcast, dear. Wow.
0: Alan, you always derail the train. I'm so pleased whenever you come on board, mate. (laughs) Uh, Getting back to It's a Sin, which somehow now seems very, very tame. You've broken him. He's absolutely convulsing. (laughs) Put a spoon in his mouth Or any other appendage
1: There's <laughs> a on This internet is having enough trouble coping with audio It's not going to cope with video Ken's not going to cope with the way that you're convulsing Brace, brace In the unlikely event of this
0: podcast landing on water sports Simon, you were uh,
1: You were I mid-flow
0: So to speak
1: the, the other thing that I was going to say is that if you, if you want to look at a history of early 80s gay Britain, Pride is a much better example. It's a fantastic film. I 100% agree with that. And it addresses the fact that lesbians actually exist, which...
2: Lesbians exist? What? Surely this is a myth.
1: I'm afraid... No, I'm not afraid <laughs> of it. Backtrack on that, owl, <laughs> And that there's always been an argument that with, with gay history, it's the blokes who write it, so the women tend to get erased. And a more modern and more telling argument is that it's the cis people who write it, so it's the trans people tend to get erased. And Peter Tatchell, who is somebody I have had issue with in in the past in some of his publicity stunts, but actually I think has his heart squarely in the right place, has recently made the point that trans people and LGBT was there right from the very start of gay pride in this country. Whereas in It's a Sin, okay, it's a a drama about HIV and AIDS It wasn't really something that directly affected the lesbian population, but it also ignores the fact that there was massive amounts of support from the lesbian population. And the work that Jill was doing in terms of cooking food, going around seeing people, cleaning cleaning for them, working on uh, on the switchboard. There were a huge number of the lesbian population of of Britain, and particularly London, who took that on their shoulders. And I think it's a bit disingenuous to just completely ignore that. There
2: are no lesbians. There are no trans people. It's only the gay men.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it's particularly good in terms of inclusion, although I can kind of understand why you wouldn't want to muddy the waters too much.
2: There's no lesbians in it.
1: There's no lesbians. There's no overtly trans people. The, po- the pub owner that always wears a wig. Could you reread that as trans? I don't think so, because he had stubble most of the time, and it's just somebody who fancies wearing a Mary Quant asymmetric bob. See, there's a few things that I've got with this. Bear in mind, I watched It's
0: a Sin from a what it turns out a position of semi ignorance. I was well aware of what was going on at the time. This has opened my eyes to things that I thought I knew, but I didn't know. And it's thrown it on screen, I think in a way that it's never been thrown on screen before. Paul and me have been talking earlier tonight about Rent, which (laughs) I've got a real, real problem with. I was casting Rent years ago, and I hated it. It was, to me, everyone's got AIDS... What a jolly old lark this is. Um, <laughs> let's sing a song. If we band together, we can overthrow the oppressors and take AZT and everything will be tickety-boo and a half. And that was thankfully not what we saw on screen. The main problem I've got with it is what I consider to be Russell T Davis tropes. If there's an underdog, they will die. And if there's somebody very, very pretty and gay, they can do absolutely arsehole things. Literally. Strut down the street, the music will start, and the world will bow at their feet because they've just done something awful to someone that's vaguely rude to them or portrayed on screen as being homophobic. Whereas in real life, you'd get smacked to fuck for being an irritating bastard. And that, unfortunately, is what Richie was to me. I mean, all right, he dies in the end. But <laughs> all the way through, he was diabolically awful to people. And yet, in the end, he was the hero. I had a bit of a
2: problem with that. The gays are awful, though. Oh, I don't know. I and, know a couple and Richie of gays irritated and the
3: right. fuck out of me. I know I touched on this earlier. It was one of the things that it did show was the fact that even though he knew he was hiv positive um he still carried on sometimes his you know sexual activities which at the time then is still unfortunately carrying on these days because you do hear news of people less than the last i don't know five six seven eight years or whatever but you have heard of cases where it's gone to court where yes, people have yeah. been charged with manslaughter yeah. carry- that carrying on so it betrays something that happened then and still happens to this day sadly there are some challenging things and some thought-provoking things. As I mentioned earlier, my osteopath had a really sort of interesting conversation about it. I hadn't watched it to Sin at that point, um, but she was saying, you know, that it actually made her go away and actually Google and look up some things and, and sort of check into some things, whereas my sort of analogy after looking at that is when you look at some of the other brilliant things that are on there, and I've actually said this to some of my work colleagues as well, is when you compare, like, you know, the man in your own shirt and things, which, again, I know, um, Ken, you know, that you were here when when we watched mm, that. Yeah. Again, it's one of those thought-provoking things that makes people think, you know, and sort of realise what actually was going on and, in a way, still is going on. One of the things she said is, you know, about how promiscuous things were. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's a gay thing, but it seems to be more out there and open in terms of the promiscuity that, you know, in the gay community things go on, having lived and seen some of the things, and known some of the things that gone in London, the standard expression was, I'll see you on Saturday night unless I get a better offer. I dare say that possibly still goes on. And that possibly still goes on in the heterosexual community, but each And every gender has their own particular ways, and I'm sure there's a lot of similarities in terms of preferences and things and and what goes on.
0: In terms
3: of that... If you could only um, see the
1: hand movements that were accompanying (laughs) (laughs) Well, in terms of
0: that, heterosexual relationships seem to be... Again, I'm willing to be corrected, but the promiscuity is far less forgiving. If you're Um, with somebody... You've made a commitment to somebody or you are supposed to be seeing somebody if you see somebody else, it's not sort of brushed off as it was just one of those things. It is a major betrayal now, from what I've gathered, there are a lot of
1: depending on depending on the the agreement that that couple has come to I mean what you're describing is conventional heterosexuality. Now, my oldest friend we've we've known each other since we were were teenagers Alex lives in London about 130% straight, has no ability to commit to a monogamous relationship and says that right at the start of every relationship he has. And generally what happens is that he has two years with a particular woman, at which point they want to start discussing monogamy. And that's not unreasonable on, on their part. And his response is, we we had this discussion right from the start. You knew what the, what the story was. And I've got to say, that's not entirely... Typical. Um, No, it's uh, not because, yeah, predominantly straight relationships, but relationships are dictated to by what you're expected from society. So straight relationships are expected to marry and settle down and produce children and stay faithful to, uh, to each other until the end of their days, which isn't necessarily a realistic goal. Society says that homosexuals are filthy bastards who uh, will check anything with a hole
0: can i just chip in here
1: speaking as the only straight in the room it's not
0: strictly true i think the parameters have changed that certainly was true 50 years ago uh when divorce I, I think was it's at- true
1: now and i think it's becoming more true now now that there's a recurrence in little britain conservatism it's what people expect Oh, it is not. No, it's not. It really is. And I see an awful lot of people and have some very revealing conversations with people. And it is what a lot of people expect. And in the same way, gay men are expected to shag around. My perspective on this is quite
0: different. Years ago, people were expected to marry, have kids, stay together forever, come what may. And that, I don't think, is a very healthy perspective.
1: And thankfully, it's changed over time. If a relationship breaks down. I agree completely, but it doesn't actually undermine my point because the expected ideal of society is that people get married and stay together forever there is an increasing realisation that that's not the case for everybody. And that's a good thing. But there is still a societal expectation that when you get married, that is it for the rest of your life. And you have this wonderful white dress event ties you into whichever fellow you've chosen to spend your life with.
0: Agreed. Uh, the idea of marriage is that it's, it's a permanent thing. The idea that gay men shag about, speaking as an outsider, that's not how it's seen at all. <coughs> oh, it is. It really is. I can only offer my perspective from the straight world. If there's a gay couple, they're just automatically seen as a gay couple and as monogamous as everybody else. Now, Um, if you scratch the surface of that... No, I'm, I'm going to give you the straight perspective because I'm fortunate enough to have had plenty of gay friends over the years. I've also been privy to the fact that several couples have been either two tops or two bottoms and therefore they seek their sexual thrills with other partners but they're still a very very much in love couple they just get their sexual fulfillment elsewhere but they're still together now i know it goes on with straight couples who are they're either swingers or they've got fetishes or whatever it is not the norm i know at least two gay couples who are perfectly happy monogamously together i find it difficult to believe that they are the only ones
3: i think it depends on the couple we've got friends as well that you know like us we are monogamous that's it end of otherwise it wouldn't work for us whereas we've got some friends which have an open relationship where they're allowed to go away and play but come back together and that's it with certain boundaries. It really depends on, I think, the couple and the relationships, certainly you know, in, in, in the gay community, and possibly uh, you know, in the straight community as well, where you know, some of the times, take the French view, where you know, you're allowed to go away and have a mistress on the side and things. A relationship is a cultural thing. Each couple has their own particular way and agreed set of boundaries that have to be adhered to, otherwise things don't work.
1: I think possibly there's an element of anybody who is gay has already had to do a degree of very intensive self-reflection and working out which direction their hormones point, but also how that affects their life. That your straight couple, boy fancies girl, girl fancies boy, it is what society's expected. They never actually have to analyse those thoughts. Paul, what's
2: your view on this? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting what Simon's just said, because it's absolutely true. As gay people... Every single thing, you know, before coming out, you have to analyse everything. You have to think, first of all, the realisation of being gay, which can take a long time. But then to come out and then to tell people, how is this going to affect me? And people argue that it's, it's not the same extent now. But it absolutely is. You have to tell people, and we have to tell people every day that, we're gay. We have to come out of the closet if we choose to, to people we meet at work, to friends, yeah. to the barber, or you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. And so coming out uh,
1: never stops.
2: No, it doesn't. And so you you're always analysing it. And so there is that extra layer of analysis when you enter into relationships. And maybe that's where the idea comes from about the gay people being having you know, having open relationships and stuff. Because obviously some of them do. But that's because we have to think about what kind of relationship we want and what kind of person we want to be with, whereas we're straight people. It's just, yeah, I want to be with a woman. And, that, <laughs> and that's the end. Thank you and good night.
3: <laughs> and have the 2.4 children. We're fortunate in the fact that we've seen a couple of friends that have gone through the surrogacy route and actually had children as well. Yeah. And that's how much things have moved on the last five to ten years. You know, stand on the side and go, Wow, that's really good news and and really positive to see that happen. So it, it's a journey. I, I really look forward to the day where, you know, I don't have to keep on my phone to sign as my partner at work. I mean, most people probably can read the code line between, but they wouldn't challenge it. Where it, it doesn't make any difference. And that will come. You look at the way things have progressed on. In the last 5, 10, 15 years, it's a hell of a fast journey that's happened. Things are but moving.
1: Actually, in the years that we've been together, that has changed a lot. Yeah. Because good. I don't think you would ever have joined an LGBT group at work. Plus Q, plus, 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 plus. Yes. Yeah. Let's not go down that route. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not trying to be dismissive. Yeah.
3: No, not, not 5, 10 years ago. No.
1: Whereas now at your work, you have a monthly meetup. Yes. Yes. And I've I've noticed this at work. So when I first started working in hospitals, and as as a very junior doctor, you you do a four-month job and then you move on and you do a four-month job and then you move on. And the way I dealt with coming out was very quickly working out who the gossipiest nurse was (laughs) and dropping Alan's name into the conversation. And I found that it went around the department like wildfire. Brilliant. Everybody knew within about three days and so I didn't have to tell anybody else and it was brilliant <laughs> whereas now I do the same thing and they don't care
2: yeah it's definitely moving in in the right direction isn't it it
1: is except I have to have keep having the conversation over and over again <laughs> yeah. whereas previously I had the conversation once and it was jungle telegraph to the entire lot <laughs> we've gone
3: quite off to I was gonna say <laughs> could I could oh, I possibly I, we it?
1: <laughs> drag it
0: back to it's a sin uh, Simon is uh, no stranger to taking the piss out of me and Alan you've seen my reaction when I get emotional over television which uh, is fair this... enough
3: no, no criticism of that at all fair well
0: enough. this I'm sorry to say didn't elicit a single tear and oh, boy, I know and
3: yeah. when we watched I'm emotionally void but Paul I'm pleased to hear that you sort of did have a reaction to it and it did strike a note as it has done with other people as well you know, each each to their own on this one in terms of what they take away from it and what, and how it strikes a chord.
2: Yeah, I, I think we you were talking talking earlier about being part of gay networks and stuff at work. And the, where I work, I'm on like the national gay committee, if, <laughs> really, if you will. National. <laughs> I, yes, yes. And some of the people who who are on that are obviously in their early twenties. There's graduates and you know, and there's there's people from all over the place. But the reaction that they've given is one of horror and you the kind of stuff you would expect, Mm. which is what you were saying, it's the same that you would expect from watching Philadelphia or My Night with Reg or you know, any of those other things. But I think it brought it into a twenty twenty-one thing. This is something that people are gonna watch and be affected by and yeah I was, I cried all the way through it, much as oh, Stuart's no, annoyance I'm, I'm glad
0: <laughs> I'm, yeah. I like any television that elicits an emotional response because I've, well I've been there several times and it's a mark, <laughs> for fuck's sake I cried when K9 got blown up in Doctor Who in the Sarah Jane episode so I have no room to talk about this at all but there's two things that I would like to bring up. Um get off. If you could contain your lust until the podcast is over. Jill is a real world character. She is um I think she's a friend of Russell T. Davis, or certainly at the time, she was a real world character. And she was also
2: the the real one was in It's a Sin. She, she was, was she was the mother of Somebody, somebody, yeah, exactly. Oh, that somebody was a
0: real good character. <laughs> that lo- stand out. I, I loved somebody. Jill, wasn't, in she real-
1: the, wasn't she the mother of the bloke who gave Colin eight?
0: Yes, I think she was. And but the the thing about Jill, she was portrayed on screen by a very talented young black actress. In real life, she was white. Now, this brings me on to. What I know, Simon, you will have a lot to say about. (laughs) Russell T. Davis has said the only thing I've ever disagreed with that he's ever said, that gay roles should only be played by gay actors. Now, I strongly disagree with this. um, And this actually actually? loops back to a Russell T. Davis series some people may have heard of called Queer as Folk, Mm. in which a lot of the gay roles were played completely convincingly by straight actors and we have a white role in this completely convincingly and utterly brilliantly played by a black actress
1: from my point of view were there my pers- the roles in queer as folk that were played by gay actors
2: I would be lying if I said I knew. I don't know. Anthony Cotton. I think, I think he might be gay. Is he a confirmed <laughs> gay? <laughs> There's rumours. <laughs> Anthony Cotton,
0: Butch Hardman of the Cobbles. <laughs> but my, my view no, has always been, and it sort of echoes what you've said, Simon, in the past about things like extras on DVDs. Actors are there to portray whatever they are told to portray by the role. If they can do it, they can do it. If they can't, they shouldn't be hired. They are just, as you will put it, movable scenery. If a, a white part can be very convincingly played by a black actress, why can't a gay part be very convincingly played as it has been? By a straight actor.
2: There is no other job in the world where you would go, you would go for a, an interview or an audition or whatever, and who you sleep with when you go home has a an impact on whether you get the job or not. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, just even the f- in the th- pornography <sighs> industry, gay for pay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm completely with you on this. Kind. I I understand, kind of where Russell T Davies is coming from because he's saying, well, in fact, I don't at all. <laughs> his, his argument was gay people just don't get roles. So I'm going to oh, give all off. of the gay roles.
0: <laughs> Acting but, is the gayest <laughs> profession on earth. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: Gay actors have been playing straight roles for hundreds of years because there haven't been any gay roles. Yeah, Yeah, it just makes no sense.
1: Among many, many, many others. The problem with that argument, gay characters should only be played by gay actors. And yeah, you can convincingly make the argument that we have an, an insight into what it's like to be outside society and to be gay. Three seconds later you come back with the argument that okay. Straight roles should only be played by straight actors, and suddenly...
2: Yeah, (laughs) it's discrimination.
1: Suddenly, an openly gay actor is very, very short of roles.
0: The flip side of the coin is with Jill. Can you imagine the uproar if Jill had been black in real life, played by a white actress? There's no difference, but it's suddenly an outrage. And the argument I I think I might have made in private messages to you, Simon... Gay, straight or other. A love story is a love story. You know how it feels to be in love, to have your heart broken. It doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight or other.
1: Yeah. You know how from,
0: that feels and you know how to act it.
1: And looking I, from outside, not so much in terms of the acting but in terms of the in terms of the writing. For a successful love story, at least one of the people involved has to be somebody that you have some sort of emotional connection to. And this is why I think Brokeback Mountain is a terrible film. Uh,
0: You see, I didn't watch it purely because it was hyped so much. Oh, what a wonderful film. Wonderful film. Oh, the boundaries it's breaking (laughs) with gay cinema making. Like there'd never been anything gay on screen before. And it put me off so much that people banged on about it over and over and over that I've still not watched it and I have no desire to. Don't bother It's exploring.
1: beautiful. The cinematography is fantastic, but for a love story, whatever the genders involved and whatever the sexualities involved are, you have to have some degree of care about at least one of the people. And Rogue Back Mountain is about two fundamentally unpleasant people yeah, um, <laughs> who fuck over their own lives and the women that they're pretending to shack in the background. So cinematography is... Beautiful. The original short story is actually a really good short story because it's not a love story. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: sweet child of mine. Would you mind telling us what the original story is about?
1: (laughs) It's basically the same story, but from a slightly different perspective.
0: Is it just two men like rotting stags?
1: Basically. Um, So
0: we really must sort of bring this to a climax happy to satisfy Alan's whims. I feel very unqualified. I enjoyed it, but I was underwhelmed in terms of a television event. I thought it was a little bit cliched on several levels. Um, but because I am a repressed minority here, I'm going to hand it over to the gays for you all to sum up my packet of fags, my beautiful packet of fags. I'll take pleasure in smoking you all.
3: I did like a good Super King XL.
0: Baby, baby! I am in flavour country. So I'm going to start with Alan. Uh, What was your overall feeling about It's a Sin? It
3: was good to watch. I would watch it again in a few years' time as a sort of reminiscent thing. In terms of a score out of five, I would give
1: it a three, possibly bordering a four. It was good, it was enjoyable, but it wasn't well. To give a little bit of context to that, the number of things that Alan has said, I could watch that again in a few years' time, I can count on the fingers of one hand. Oh. <laughs> so it, it's not like you and me, where we will watch the same old crap over and over and over again. For him to want to rewatch something is a bit of a red-letter I did say it was a keeper, didn't I, last night?
2: Yeah.
3: yeah. Good um, grief. grief.
2: Paul, what did you think? <laughs> I really liked it. I loved it. As I said, I get the RCD cliches. I cried all the way through, and I would watch it again. Like Alan, I'll give it a couple of years, but I'll I'll watch it again. And if we're, if we're scoring it out of five, I'll give it a 4.5. Mm.
0: A f- wow. point?
2: A point yep. Yep. five? I'm splitting it up. Good God.
1: Dr. Exton? Well, splitting it up is a little more detail than needed, <laughs> but thank you. Um... I think it's very good. I think it's a greatest hits of gay cinema from from the last 30 years. And I don't think there's an awful lot original to it. But what he does with it is very well done. They are very well-drawn characters. I think there are flaws in terms of inclusion of other minorities although i do kind of understand why that choice has been made i think there are interesting characters that were completely swept under the carpet and i'm completely thinking about ash in this you don't learn anything about him at all no right i am speaking
0: as a straight man here he is the most beautiful thing in it
1: yes
2: yes he is 100% agreed
1: Actually, potentially one of the most interesting characters in there, and one of the most interesting stories. So, somebody from an Indian background. How did he come out? What was the reaction of it of his family? Because you find out that his surname is Mukherjee when they all go for HIV test. So he's he's from a Hindu background, presumably. There is one tiny little mention of that when he on the night that he first meets Richie, and he completely clams down. And Hindu populations can be very different about how they accept gay people, lesbian people.
3: Certain so African communities came out in that as well.
1: Yeah, but uh, Roscoe got a lot of screen time about yeah. the reality of his world, his life, his very traditional family and how they would deal with it Ash got none of that mm. it was just he's there to be pretty he's tall he's a teacher but we're not going to dwell too much on that there's a whole thing about section 28 that we're going to gloss over in about three seconds you could do an entire show about Ash any every time we, and we like. would
2: all watch that
1: yeah yes it's possible that that's a planned spin-off
2: the RTD does love a spin-off
1: but looking at it purely as it's a sin it's it's a waste we have another minority character who is just there to be decorative, and he is very decorative, but doesn't really do an awful lot. And, and the whole teaching thing and Section 28 thing, and he's, he's the sort of the face of Section 28, that falls completely flat. It doesn't come anywhere near addressing quite how damaging to Section 28 was. And
2: that should have been such a massive part of it. I and mean, I, I know the, yeah. the whole thing is about AIDS, 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 AIDS. But it's a bit of a laugh. Really. <laughs> not as much as AIDS the musical. <laughs> Reddened. Oh, God. this is an ideal <laughs> opportunity to talk about Section Twenty Eight and and as you say, how damaging it was and how horrendous it was. And it was it was literally one scene.
1: I mean, in terms of legacy of It's a Sin, I think HIV test rates have doubled.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Since that was put out.
0: That's got to be a positive. Definitely. Yeah. Well, hopefully not too many positives, but yes. (laughs) Oh, that, I'm genuinely delighted to to find that.
1: Yeah, because there's an awful lot of presumption now that AIDS is a thing of the past. And it isn't. It's much less frequent. But there are people who don't respond to antiretroviral therapy. And so will develop into symptomatic AIDS within a few years. God, now, I've got to cut
0: across you there, Dr. Exton. I may erroneously earlier on have said that if you're taking PrEP, you can't pass on HIV. You called me out on that. You are medicine. a doctor. I would like your medical opinion.
1: Okay, so I think PrEP is one of the biggest game-changers that there has been in HIV medicine. PrEP is taking a a specific medication to prevent becoming HIV positive. It doesn't stop you passing on HIV to somebody else. That is what antiretroviral therapy does, and it does extremely well. And the majority of people on antiretroviral therapies, the majority of people who are HIV positive and being looked after by medical specialists, keep their CD4 count up, don't develop symptomatic AIDS, if they stay with an undetectable viral load, which means you can't detect the virus within their blood, they're not infectious. There is no evidence whatsoever that somebody with an undetectable viral load can pass on HIV.
2: That's the U equals U. Undetectable is untransmittable yeah. movement, and isn't it? Yeah,
1: it protects that individual. So if you are exposed to HIV, then pre-exposure prophylaxis will, in theory stop you developing HIV. It's a very nice theory. There are really two problems with it. The first is that the drug Truvada is also used for treatment of HIV. And the natural history of HIV is that it mutates and it produces resistant forms. And that's why it's very important for somebody who's HIV positive to continually be tested to see whether their particular strain of HIV is becoming drug resistant, and then you, you change your drug. There are Truvada resistant <coughs> strains of HIV in the wild population. And what that means is that if you're using Truvada to protect you against HIV with no other protection, um, and people talk about this as the chemical condom, if that is all you are using and you are exposed to a Truvada resistant strain, it is exactly the same as being exposed to a normal strain of HIV without a condom. Condoms work brilliantly. They may not be the most pleasant thing in the world, but they work very, very well to prevent the spread of HIV. The point about PrEP is that if you are using it without a condom and you become HIV positive as a result, and there have been a number of cases throughout the world you have no comeback on the, uh, on the drug company because their license says you need to use a condom. I think
0: this is possibly the most serious and <laughs> important bit of podcasting we've ever done. And as such, I'm going to draw it
1: to a close. Do you have any final thoughts? I was going to talk about the fact that they didn't show a single red ribbon. Red ribbons are massively important because it was a, a symbol of aid awareness. And actually, I had one of the very first red ribbons in the country because one of the first places they were given out was the Erasure Tour. And we were we were given red ribbons at the end of it. And I remember going to my local gay bar afterwards the next week wearing my red ribbon and nobody had a clue what it meant. Red ribbons as aid awareness was a brilliant idea because it didn't say, I am gay. It didn't say, I have AIDS. It said, I know about the problem and I'm sympathetic to it. The ribbon has been reused for a huge number of other things. So there is autism awareness, different types of cancer awareness ribbons, heart failure awareness ribbons. The awareness ribbons have become almost a cliche, but they started off with the red ribbons for AIDS awareness. And that was a big, big deal certainly in the early 90s when this was covering, and he, he didn't say anything about that at all.
3: Got Doctor Who into it, though, didn't he?
1: Well, it's so the important stuff.
2: Oh. Well. <laughs> yeah. You... As long as he covered the darlings, he was all right. That's a really interesting point. Surely someone someone like Jill, who was so, yeah, so involved in the activism and raising awareness of AIDS, would have at least worn one, if not, if not mentioned it, but...
1: I'm just very quickly going to look up the AIDS awareness ribbon and see when it was first. 91 would have been when I got one in the UK. It was within the timescale of this. It should have been a mentioned thing. So she should have had one. Yeah. So as a final note, are we giving it a thumbs up
0: or a thumbs down, boys?
2: Thumbs up. Thumbs
0: up. Yeah, thumbs up. I'd certainly give it a thumbs up. I think as a piece of television, it's not without its flaws, but I can see why it will be a gay landmark. I just think it's not as credit worthy as something like Queerest Folk. I still regard Queerest Folk as the landmark.
2: These days, yeah, twenty years ago, yeah, I agree (laughs) with that. We don't have gay landmarks, we have landmarks. We have
0: people landmarks.
2: (laughs) Yeah, We're all part of the same community.
0: Well, on a purely (laughs) unsexual note, thank you very much, boys, girls, and everybody else for listening. It's been a pleasure to have your board.
2: Always a pleasure. Have a great one. Bye now.
0: The Exton-Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.